The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Controlling Moderate to Severe Asthma Across the Lifespan in an Ever-Evolving Treatment Landscape. How much do you know? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QYV 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, this is Wanda Pipitanical from Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome to this educational activity on controlling moderate to severe asthma across the lifespan. All right, so we're going to talk a little bit now about the atopic march. And as you know, the atopic march usually starts with atopic dermatitis and food allergy as some of the first manifestations of the atopic march, then going on to develop asthma and allergic rhinitis. And you can see across the lifespan, you know, from infancy into adulthood, how the classic atopic march presents. Now we're going to go over the inflammatory subtypes of asthma. As you can see, airway inflammation is really portrayed by several biomarkers that we can usually obtain in sputum, BAL, bronchial biopsies, FENO, blood eosinophils, and allergic sensitization. And these biomarkers can help determine the type of phenotypes that we see in asthma. There can be several types. You can have primarily eosinophilic, you can have allergic, you can have a mixture of eosinophilic and allergic or a mixture of eosinophilic and neutrophilic, and then even some that are just really primarily neutrophilic or granulocytic as well. So it can be very heterogeneous. And these endotypes have a spectrum of whether the patient is potentially type 2 high or more eosinophilic and allergic or non-type 2 or type 2 low, which tends to be more that neutrophilic type of phenotype. So what do we think about when we think about type 2 high asthma? So it's really most often associated with allergic or IgE-mediated reactions, sometimes also eosinophilic inflammation, and can be related to cytokines, such as IL-13-mediated nitric oxide production and also responsiveness to corticosteroids. So these kind of markers really kind of point along to type 2 high asthma. In addition, when you think about type 2 high asthma, you think of a lot of other allergic atopic conditions, such as allergic rhinitis and atopic dermatitis. They tend to be early in onset, really lots of children, a significant proportion have this type 2 high atopic allergic asthma phenotype. They often have a very strong family history of atopic diseases. They can present with a spectrum of mild, severe disease, and they can have a very variable course as well. Of course, with all types of asthma, type 2 high and type 2 low, they can be exacerbated by characteristics such as a high BMI or obesity as well, which is highly prevalent. Other things to think about when you think about type 2 high asthma is that they often have a lot of eosinophilia in the serum. You know, it can be greater than 150 to 300 blood count of eosinophils. If you get a sputum, it's greater than 2% eosinophils in the sputum. And really about 50% of asthma is associated with this high eosinophilic type phenotype. The eosinophilia can persist even if you are treated with inhaled corticosteroids. And they can be variable whether they also portray allergic or allergen-specific IgE. These patients with severe asthma often have the eosinophilic phenotype, and so it can have severe morbidity. And they often can be related to a lot of other conditions as well, such as sinus disease, polyp formation, 
and aspirin sensitivity. And like I mentioned before, can be exacerbated with obesity or high BMI. So never look at patient-centered approaches. So what do we think about the multiple patient types that might fall under a type 2 umbrella in asthma? So type 2 asthma is often defined by an elevated level of these type 2 inflammatory cytokines, namely IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. So it's really important to remember that those key inflammatory cytokines are important in type 2 asthma, and there are treatments that can work with these cytokines as well. There's no single biomarker that really can fully capture the range of type 2 inflammation in patients with type 2 eye asthma. But we do look at some of these potential biomarkers. You can get an IgE level, you can get an FENO level, and you can get an eosinophilic level. And sometimes patients will have one or more of these characteristics in describing their asthma. Many of the patients with IgE can have corticosteroid responsive early onset asthma. And there can be a range as well with all of the different biomarkers where patients can also develop moderate to severe corticosteroid dependent allergic eosinophilic asthma and even late onset as well. And there's just an umbrella of different types of phenotypes that can be under this area of type 2 asthma. So what do we think about in the immunology of asthma? And this is a slide that really goes over the inflammatory mechanisms and features that lead to severe asthma, some of the inflammatory mechanisms. And it nicely kind of portrays kind of this type 2 inflammation and non-type 2 inflammation. So on the left side, you can see the type 2 inflammation includes antigens and exposure to allergens. And as you can see, these stimulate type 2 cells to stimulate IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. And you can see IL-13 also has a feedback mechanism that also stimulates TSLP, which is important in this pathway as well. There are other innate lymphoid cells that work in type 2 cells with GATA and CRTH2, and those interact as well. When the cytokines are produced with IL-4, 5, and 13, you can see this mechanism where the IL-4 can stimulate the B cell directly to produce IgE. And IgE, as you know, is really important in allergy. And allergen-specific IgE, when they're exposed to allergens, you can see they interact with the mast cell and cause degranulation of the mast cell and that allergic response. The allergic response stimulates PGD2, histamines, other cytokines, IL-3, 4, 5, and 9. And that really includes this hyper-responsive allergic asthma, remodeling, mucus production, and smooth muscle contraction as well. Leukotrienes also are important in this pathway, as you can see. And then the cytokines also, as you can see, IL-5 and CRTH2 really are involved in the eosinophil. And the eosinophil is also very important in a lot of this hyper-responsive remodeling, mucus production, and smooth muscle contraction as well. IL-13 is also important in this pathway. And you can see on the left side how these interactions all play when it comes to type 2 inflammation. Now, when you look at non-type 2 inflammation, you can see that there is some overlap with some of the cytokines and markers in with type 1. So it's not really a one-size-fits-all, but basically non-type 2 is often triggered by irritants, pollutants, microbes, and viruses. And then they stimulate cytokines such as IL-6, IL-33, and IL-25, which go along the pathway as well, again, causing hyper-responsiveness. There are other markers that are important as well, CXCL8, GMCSF, TGF-beta, and IL-23. And you can see also that TH17 cells are also important in this pathway as well. And the cytokines IL-6, IL-17, and IL-8 really stimulate the neutrophil 
and provide more of this neutrophilic type asthma. Lipoxin and ALX are also very important, leukotriene B4, interferon gamma, and TNF-alpha, which are stimulated by the Th1 cells, are important in this non-type 2 pathways. You can see that there's some overlap, but also there are definitely clear pathways between them. And the exposures for non-type 2 inflammation can be a little bit different than the antigens, although it is possible that there is an interplay between, you know, the pollutants and viruses that trigger asthma can also have allergic components as well. So it's a complicated slide, but this really kind of highlights the complexity, but also the clear markers that are in these pathways that we know about in severe asthma asthma. So what are some biologic approaches to treat asthma? I went through the immunopathophysiology, and it's really an exciting time when we think about asthma because we now have six FDA-approved agents to treat severe asthma, and they work on many of these targets that I discussed. So starting on the left, you can see we have Tupilumab, which is FDA approved down to age six for asthma, and it targets the IL-4 receptor, which in turn interacts and reduces IL-4 and IL-13. It's given every two weeks as a subcutaneous injection, and it's also approved for other indications such as atypic dermatitis, actually down to six months of age. It's approved for adults 18 and above with chronic rhinocytositis and nasal polyps, and it's also most recently approved for patients 12 and above for eosinophilic esophagitis. So a very multifactorial agent that can treat many, many conditions that kind of go along that type 2 pathway. It's approved in multiple countries, including Europe and, of course, the United States as well. The second one is omalizumab, and that actually has been around the longest. It was the first biologic that came out now probably almost 20 years ago, and that really targets IgE. And those of us who are allergists and treat allergic conditions know how important IgE is into allergic conditions. I view that without IgE, I don't really have much of a specialty. So IgE is central to allergic components, and it is FD-approved down to age 6 for asthma. It's given every two to four weeks, and the dosing is based on the total IgE level in the patient along with weight. And it's also FDA approved for some other conditions, including chronic spontaneous urticaria and chronic rhinocytositis with nasal polyps. The nasal polyp indication is for 18 and above, and the urticaria indication is for 12 and above. And again, it's approved in many countries as well. Benralizumab is a sub-Q injection that actually binds to the IL-5 receptor. And if you remember on the last slide, I mentioned that IL-5 is so important in eosinophilia. It's approved in adolescents and adults 12 and above, and it's given every four weeks subcutaneously for the first three doses and then every eight weeks. So it has a little bit nicer length between dosing after you get through the first three injections. So far, there are not other FDA-approved indications, and they are also approved in several countries as well, including U.S., the U.K., and Europe. So mefalizumab is another one that works on the eosinophil. Benralizumab, of course, works on eosinophils by blocking the receptor, but mefalizumab actually blocks directly IL-5. And that's approved for children and adults, six and above. It's given in a simple dosing every four weeks. And it's also FDA approved for some other indications such as eosinophilic granulomas, polyarteritis, and HES, hyper-eosinophilic syndrome, and chronic rhinocytositis with measles polyp. So it really has been FDA approved for several of the other eosinophilic disorders. Again, approved in other countries as well. Reslizumab is given only an IV preparation and it's FDA approved for adults 18 and above. 
again, like mepolizumab works on the IL-5 receptor, it's IL-5 directly, and it is given every four weeks. It is not approved for other indications. And so it is sometimes used in some patients who maybe have not responded well to mepolizumab, but maybe have higher levels of eosinophilia, and then someone who might want to try brizolizumab in that particular patient. Tezapilumab is the new kid on the block that just was approved most recently, and it targets the TSLP pathway. And that's been found very important in actually type 1 and type 2 asthma. And so really is kind of looking at more type 2 independent asthma. It does seem to work better, though, in the type 2 asthma. All the other FDA-approved agents really target type 2 inflammation. The anti-TSLP or tesipilumab is given every four weeks, and it just came out, so it's not approved for other indications, but it's approved in the U.S., and it's awaiting approval in the U.K. and Europe as well. So really exciting times that we have all these biologics that treat severe asthma, but also many of them are being looked at other conditions. Some of them are getting FDA approved for other conditions and really can help the armamentarium for when we treat our patients, specifically if they have multiple conditions. So what does the genus say about treatment approaches in adolescents and adults? So this is the GINA guidelines where it goes over the steps that are offered to the patients based on their symptom control. What I'm going to do in this particular slide is really focus on step five. I'll remind you that when it comes to approaching our patients, we have this algorithm we'll review, assess, and adjust. We really take a look at the patient and review their symptoms, exacerbations, their lung function, how the patient is doing, how the patient feels satisfied by their treatments. And then with assessment, we really want to make sure we confirm the diagnosis, make sure that we look at other comorbidities, looking at symptom control and modifiable risk factors, and also patient preferences and goals. We definitely always want to look at inhaler technique and adherence as well, and really have a kind of a shared decision-making approach when it comes to assessing these patients' asthma. And then we adjust based on how our review and assessment comes to play, and really, again, treating modifiable risk factors, using non-pharmacological strategies and avoiding triggers, and adjusting medications as needed, and of course, having education and skills training. So as you can see, the different steps are really based on increasing difficulty in keeping control. But when you think about step five, these are patients who are still quite symptomatic and they even have requiring an add-on, you know, long-acting muscarinic antagonist. And when these patients are in step five, you really start thinking about assessments for treating them with biologics, whether it's anti-IgE, whether it's one of the anti-IL-5s that I mentioned, or the anti-IL-5 receptor blocker, whether you work on anti-IL-4, which in turn blocks IL-4 and IL-13, or anti-TSLP. We also look at, of course, you know, you would be adding on high-dose inhaled corticosteroids and formoterol in these patients as well. But really, step five is really thinking about biologics. There's other options that are discussed in the GINA guidelines. There is some evidence about azithromycin and leukotriene antagonists and even low-dose oral corticosteroids when you start getting into that high step five range. In earlier things, you can think also about, you know, sublingual immunotherapy or some of the other, you know, leukotriene antagonists, as well as stated in the GINA guidelines. So what can biologics do? They are really, really effective all across the board in reducing asthma exacerbations, which I think is a key feature that patients come to us very troubled by, by having frequent exacerbations. You can see across the board the significant reductions in exacerbation rate reductions in the different biologics. 
Now, none of these are head-to-head studies. They're all their own studies. So you can't really say, you know, one is definitely better than the other based on these numbers because they're not head-to-head. But it does give you an idea in the certain patient population that they were studied at that Doopy really had a 70% reduction in exacerbations. Homolizumab has had 25, but I've seen some other studies where there's been a range. Benram, Mepo, and Reslizumab have all had really significant reductions. And as you can see, Tezapilumab has significant reductions as well. Some of the other studies, agents have also shown OCS reduction in steroid-dependent asthmatics. And Dupilumab is actually on the labels, FDA approved for steroid-dependent asthma. Patients, Benbrolizumab and Mepo also showed some reductions in oral corticosteroids. They all, as you can see, mostly have quality of life improvement, and they also have FDV1 improvement as well. And I would say, you know, again, these aren't head-to-head at all of the agents are very, very effective. There have been some steroid-sparing studies, even in omalizumab. Tezzy is still new out, and all of them do improve quality of life. So what do you think about when you're selecting biologic treatment? You know, I think the baseline assessment always, you want to really make sure that the asthma diagnosis is confirmed, that we would not want to go down the path of adding all of these toxic medications, steroids, and going into oral corticosteroids without confirming the asthma diagnosis. Adherence is also very important. It is often difficult to get patients to take complicated medication regimens. So we really want to touch base on that. And then also, of course, thinking about identifying and managing comorbidities. That's really important. It really helps us decide on what may be some therapy. And as I noted, some of the biologic treatments also can help manage those comorbidities with the same treatment. We also want to look at biomarkers, looking at eosinophil counts, FENO and IgE, and really measuring those as well. Those can help point to whether the patient is type 2 or non-type 2. And then really we're working towards the goal of treating asthma with precision medicine approaches based on endotype markers, biomarkers as well. So that's really the wave of the future. And we hope to have more predictive biomarkers in the near future and working on studies to really find those biomarkers. What do we think about when we're selecting biologic treatments? So when you have a blood eosinophil count less than 150 cells per microliter, then many of the biologics that are FDA proof of type 2, we have seen less efficacy with those who have really persistently low blood eosinophil counts and FENO levels. So less than 25 parts per billion, often the biologics are not as effective. Now, I would say that a lot of times patients who are on a lot of systemic corticosteroids or inhaled corticosteroids can sometimes have their blood eosinophil count falsely depressed. So it is sometimes often helpful to really check it a couple of times and make sure that it's persistently low. But if it's elevated and the FENO is elevated and they're sensitized to an inhaled allergen or aeroallergen, you can think about some of these type 2 biologics, such as anti-IL-4-13, which is dupilumab, the anti IgE, omalizumab, or anti-TSLP, tezapilumab. If they're not allergic, per se, you might be able to consider some of the others, particularly the anti-TSLP. And dupilumab has been shown, regardless of sensitization to allergen, to be considered potentially effective as well. 
And it's, of course, these blood eosinophils are low and the FENO levels are low, but they still have persistent asthma. Tezipilumab is the one that is FDA approved for some of the non-type 2 asthma. But all of the others are FDA approved for type 2 asthma. If they have some markers that go along with type 2 inflammation, such as blood eosinophil counts elevated or FENO elevated, then you can think about all of these other biologics. If they're sensitized to an allergen, you really can think about anti-IgE. And then you think about the other comorbidities as well to decide on which treatment may be best. And also, again, a shared decision-making, discussing with the family, whether they can be given at home, whether they felt comfortable giving it to themselves, how often the injections are, and any other concerns that the family may have. So this is a discussion of selecting biologic treatments who have elevated eosinophils, but their eosinophil count is less than 1,500. This is really considered basically once they're above that cutoff of 150, that they really have kind of this type 2 inflammation. So you can consider the FENO levels and the blood eosinophil count. So looking at them, again, the high blood eosinophil and FENO levels and thinking about some of the type 2 biologics, including the anti-IL-5s, anti-IL-5 receptors receptors or anti-TSLP. If they have high FENO as well, you can again think about all of the different biologics. And all of the ones that are type 2, you can think about when you're thinking about elevated FENO and blood eosinophils. So that's all of them except anti-TSLP. Anti-TSLP has been shown to be helpful for both type 2 and non-type 2 asthma. And then you should also definitely look at considering the presence of T2 comorbid disease entities. For instance, if a patient has severe atopic dermatitis, you know, you might want to think about the anti-IL-4, IL-13 biologic because it's FDA approved actually down to six months for severe atopic dermatitis. And when you're talking about chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, anti-IgE, the anti-IL-4, 13 may be important as well to think about and also some of the anti-IL-5s as well. And then when it's a sensitization to an, an inhaled allergen, again, you'll think of the type 2, really thinking a lot about anti-ILG, but really all of them can be considered when you're thinking about inhaled perennial allergens. So when you're thinking about biologic treatment, when the blood eosinophil count is greater than 1,500, you think you might want to look at ruling out hematological conditions and other hyper eosinophilic conditions as well. And those, you could think about anti-IL-5 or the IL-5 receptors, but you really might want to refer and make sure that you're not dealing with something else. But those could be some type of hyper eosinophilic condition that could be treated by some of the anti-IL-5s. With oral corticosteroid-dependent asthma, again, anti-IL-4 and 13 really has been FDA-approved for that. And of course, most of the biologics have had shown some benefit in oral corticosteroid-dependent asthma, and it had some steroid-sparing effects as well. And the thing to remember is that the biologic treatment response often improves with increasing blood eosinophil levels. So the higher the blood eosinophil level, you can often expect a higher rate of response. And other things to think about is, you know, other conditions, you know, BMI, patient preference, treatment compliance, frailty, dexterity, and age, and pregnancy as well. I mean, in general, pregnancy is really not definitely approved for using the biologics as well. And you can always consider switching to a different treatment option if there's a suboptimal response to first-line therapy. So that's something to keep in mind as well.
So in the children, ages 6 to 11, this is the slide describing the GINA treatment approaches. And just again, highlighting and remembering the assessment is very important to make sure that you confirm the diagnosis, that symptom control and modifiable risk factors, including lung function, are assessed. You want to make sure that you touch base on any comorbidities, particularly some treatments that can benefit and reduce the symptoms of other comorbidities. Inhaler technique and adherence is always important to discuss. And then also a shared decision-making, really discussing with the child and the parent preferences and goals of how they want their asthma management. And as I mentioned, again, we're focusing really on step five, that, you know, when they're needing a lot of therapy and, you know, getting into the high-dose ICS lavas, then you really want to start thinking about add-on therapy. The steps are very similar as to what we have seen in the adult. Really remembering step three and step four, there is now the discussion of the, you know, maintenance reliever therapy where you give ICS infomoderol during exacerbations or where you're having symptoms. And then in step five, you really start thinking about biologics for sure. So what has been some of the evidence that has been seen in some of the studies looking at efficacy in children? So one of the big studies that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine relatively recently in the last year was the VOYAGE study. What you can see is they had a large study of nearly 400 patients where they had a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of dupilumab versus placebo. These patients weren't required to be above a certain level of blood eosinophil count or type 2 inflammatory phenotype, but as you can see, most many of them were. And what you can see is that the benefit also is definitely seen in those with the type 2 inflammatory phenotype and significantly better. When you look at the change from baseline in FEV1 in this population, you can see that it's really highly favorable with lung function in favor of tupilumab. So really quite effective in children, really excellent results and really helped, you know, push the approval down to age 6 in tupilumab. You can see dupilumab is so much better in terms of reducing asthma exacerbations, really cutting them in half, 50 to 70%, much, much better as far as relative risk rate risk for severe asthma, asthma exacerbations. And these are generally mostly the type 2 inflammatory phenotype. This also looks at the ACQ score, which is the asthma control quotient. And you can see as well that the dupilumab fared very well when it comes to quality of life and the asthma control questionnaire. So really, really had very effective beneficial results in exacerbations, ACQ, and lung function for sure. So how do we identify and address modifiable causes of asthma control? I think one of the big things we always have to do when we see our patients is really monitor for adherence. It's really common across all severities of asthma for patients to be non-adherent. You know, often it is just difficult to get them up above that, you know, 70 to 80 percent adherence, which is actually required for the medications to work. Patients sometimes don't like to take the inhalers. They're worried about side effects. It's just the cumbersome of doing something daily. And it really needs to be a priority when you're thinking about difficult to control asthma. And when patients are non-adherent, that's really when a clinician really needs to have a good discussion about the barriers of adherence. And that's what I also think, especially if the patient has difficult to control asthma, when you start thinking about biologics, because biologics, often you don't have to take them every day. And sometimes you get that injection and you know it's in the system for a while. 
And the other important thing to remember is also inhaler technique. That is a key factor, which is often associated with poor asthma control, frequent emergency room visits, and the medications can't work at all if the inhaler is not being used properly. So errors should be corrected and technique really needs to be checked frequently. It's very common among children and adults to have incorrect inhaler technique, making sure the young children, of course, have a proper aero chamber or spacer to make sure that they're using it correctly. But often it's difficult even for adults to use. So we really want to make sure that you can address these modifiable causes that could really make asthma difficult to control. So there are a number of things you should do when you're confirming inhaler technique. And there are a number of different inhaler types available. So it's really important to spend adequate time training the family on how to use it. And they can change frequently depending on insurance coverage and formularies. You know, there are dry powder inhalers. They are HFA, aerosol chambers. There are many different types. What are some of the goals and objectives we should discuss when we're thinking about patient and caregiver education? Again, thinking about a shared decision model where you really are developing a partnership with common goals on how we're going to control patients' asthma. This involves understanding asthma risk, explaining things in very simple terms. I went over that complicated pathophysiologic slide, but you want to try to make this very simple for the patients to understand the type of asthma that they may have based on their biomarkers and what are some therapies that are known to work. Of course, you're going to have to address adverse effects of medications and any of their concerns they may have on adverse effects from medications. You want to make sure that they understand what you're saying. You know, have them repeat and kind of relay what their understanding of what you're trying to provide in terms of education. You should also acknowledge the role of prevention and avoiding triggers. And that's really important as a when they get the allergy testing to understand what they're allergic to and how they could avoid some of the allergic triggers, but also other triggers as well. Viruses, pollutants, and things like that are important to discuss and as much infection control as you can in regards to avoiding viral triggers. Then you want to make sure you explain the device and how important it is to be compliant with the treatment plans. You want to talk about concerns and expectations, and you want to have a really clear written asthma action plan on what to do when their asthma gets worse. In addition, you want to recognize the difference between controller and reliever treatment. That can be a complicated concept that you want to take time to explain to your patients and really make sure that you have reinforcement at each visit with continuity and consistency in providing the education. The other thing to also bring into the discussion is other comorbid conditions, and that can help provide recommendations based on other conditions that could be treated by the same therapy, particularly many of the biologics now, which have FDA-approved indications for multiple diseases. So in summary, we have gone through really understanding and discussing the heterogeneity of moderate to severe asthma. And that it's really, really important to discuss and understand type 2 airway inflammation. That's a really key phenotype and a key treatable trait that there have been really major advances in treatment. We now have five, six biologics that can treat the type 2 airway inflammation, which is really key. There have been a number of these specific and effective biologics that inhibit the type 2 inflammation. They're available both in children and adults with uncontrolled moderate to severe asthma. It's a really exciting time. For a long time, we only had one biologic, which was the anti-IgE. And prior to 20 years ago, we had no biologics. And now we have six, which is really, really exciting. 
And these therapies can really significantly reduce asthma exacerbations in patients that have uncontrolled moderate to severe asthma. And there's lots of studies looking at now other indications potentially for these biologics, and even if there's any way that they can work on modifying the course of the disease by affecting the immunologic pathways for these diseases. I thank everybody for your time, and I hope that you learned a lot from this program. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QYV860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi.